you know, how do you solve this problem of people jumping ship? Well, give them an environment where they can truly live lives of meaning and purpose through enriching the lives they touch and getting recognized and rewarded for it. Welcome to Humans of SaaS. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and on this show, I talk to entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders from the tech industry who each have a unique and compelling story to share. Fred Reichheld is a Bain Fellow and inventor of NPS, or Net Promoter Score, a system adopted by thousands of companies around the world from early stage tech startups to industrial titans like Mercedes-Benz and Apple. He's authored numerous best-selling books that have helped companies thrive in a customer-driven economy, and according to the New York Times, he put loyalty economics on the map, which is an amazing claim to fame. In his new book, Winning on Purpose, Fred demonstrates the primary purpose of a business should be to enrich the lives of its customers, and he unveils the Earned Growth Rate, or EGR, the first reliable complementary accounting measure that can truly leverage the power of NPS. So Fred, I'm very excited to be speaking with you today. Thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here, Ben. Thank you. To start things off, I mean, you've created one of the most widely recognized me metrics for measuring co customer loyalty. It's used around the world. You've also had an incredible career. Uh, what was the impetus for writing this new book? Well, you're, I was very pleased with the adoption of Net Promoter around the world. Uh, Fortune magazine reported last year that two thirds or more of the large companies in the world are now using it. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, that feels lovely. But the <laughs> sure. problem is most people are misusing it and some even abusing it they're they're getting just a tiny fraction of the potential of this system so i'm hoping to use this book as an opportunity to to get the net promoter movement back on track mm. and then there's a, a second thing that is important the first one get it back on track means hope people understand the true purpose what it's trying to accomplish what what the best practices are and, and identify some of those poisonous practices that are getting in the way of progress. But as we have um, gotten feedback from millions and millions of customers and employees, it, it almost lights up the, uh, the business playing field in a new way and helps us understand what really does drive success in a business setting. And, and it's a fresh new vista that I hope people understand. And it, it's, it's the evidence I use that they're really the only way to to build a successful business and to win mm -hmm. is to uh, to love your customers. You know, you can't measure that easily from accounting. Accounting and financials tell us when we've extracted a million dollars from some from customers wallets. It doesn't tell us when our employees work is meaningful mm -hmm. and when it is actually enriching the lives of its customers. Absolutely. I think I'm, I'm excited to dig into that because definitely there's a lot of misuse. I always think of, I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it or someone sent it to you. There's a meme, somebody getting an NPS survey from Microsoft, and it says, how likely are you to recommend Windows 10 to a friend or colleague? And their response was, I need you to understand that people don't go around recommending operating systems to each other. <laughs> I've uh, seen that. That's just one that comes to mind of like, it's probably not the best use, but couldn't agree more that it's about customer love. And what I loved about your book is that you back that up with so much data that it is indisputable that that is where companies need to be focusing and what the future of successful companies looks like. Well, I've worked at, at Bain & Company for almost 45 years now. And um, that organization is, is just rigor and data inside out. And, and it's my own personality. I, I invest behind my ideas. So when you put your personal money on bets behind companies, you really do want to have the, the facts and the data. And this data about who has the best net promoter score in each industry, when correctly measured apples to apples comparison, that's really informed a lot of important investments of my time, just not, not just my money, but who I want to spend my life with, who I want to help succeed. Definitely. And I want to get into, I love the frenzy. I love the, the stock index. But before we do that, I'm, I'm just very curious. Did you have any idea how big this was going to be when you first put this out? No, although... I had high hopes. I really thought that we were seeing the world in a fresh light and that a lot of people were wasting a lot of time and effort. So I guess I had a, you know, a wild dream, but mm -hmm. no, I, this is way above my expectations. Was there a moment or a certain a, a time when you realized like, holy crap, like this is, <laughs> this is big. Like when you found out that 
X company was using it or something like that. Yeah, there's a lot of signposts along the way. And there have been an amazing counter-movement that is a small group of people, but just uh, they almost have an obsessive hate for Net Promoter and oh, try yeah. to disprove <laughs> it and make jokes about it. And oh, yeah. I don't. I never saw that coming, and I don't even understand the, uh, well, some of the inspiration I understand because they have competitive metrics that they thought were better. Right. I suppose when, when companies like Apple adopt Net Promoter and because it's an open source movement, improve it and share the best practices and other people see how powerful it can be. That was a huge step forward. But Lego had also a great company and, and also some really impressive uh, advances. And I suppose within Bain and Company, as I saw Bain using it more and more to run its own business better, both for customers and employees, that that was a big step. It's been a long, long, it's, you know, it's almost 20 years. It's yeah. a long journey. Absolutely. It's had a huge role in, in shaping tech companies today. And, and I want to dig into some of those, I, both the improper uses and some of the objections that I've heard being in, in customer success for, for most of my career and always being in tech startups. I've, I've been in a lot of interesting debates and conversations about NPS. So starting with the ways that you've seen it abused or used incorrectly, can you give an example of where you've seen it, where companies have employed it incorrectly or they're using it in an abusive manner? Probably the most common misuse is when I see uh, frontline employees behaving in a way that makes it clear that their uh, their bonus and their career success is obviously linked to their net promoter score. Because mm. that's, you know, to take the car dealer where you have a horrible experience and then at the end they ask for feedback, but it's clear they don't really want feedback. Yeah. They just want a 10 or else they'll get into a lot of trouble. Yeah. And you'd say, oh, yeah, I don't want that guy to get fired. Most of what was horrible about the process was probably his boss's fault. Mm -hmm. um, so you give a courtesy 10 just to get out of the conversation. And and that destroys the credibility of NPS. But it also, it's selfish for an employee to say, I don't really care about your feedback. I just need a 10, please. Mm -hmm. When And that's so contrary to the philosophy of loving feedback, which is, is there anything that I could have done better and, and made your experience, not just for you, but, but for all the future customers so I can learn how to, to be better at, at taking care of people? So extra, taking a step back from that, would you go so far as to say that maybe there's exceptions to every rule, but compensation should in no way be tied to NPS score? One in a thousand situations, it works when it's linked to frontline bonuses uh, and, and only at team level, never the individual. Because right. indiv it's just too scary for an individual. Yeah. You get one or two lousy customers who are unreasonable and they give you zeros and you get fired. Mm -hmm. So you, you, most people need their job. They don't want a, uh, that uncertain in their lives. So don't put people in that situation. The answer is just don't do it. Don't link it to frontline compensation. It's 99% stupid. I like that. Good, good way of looking at it. Going to one of the objections I, I, that, that I've heard before, so to give you a bit of context, we last year surveyed 100 customer success executives about NPS as a component of, of customer health scores. So we're in B2B, we're always measuring customer health and tracking health and, and making sure that we know if something changes so that we can intervene and hopefully turn them from an unhappy or an unhealthy customer into a healthy and happy customer. There were no arguments about the NPS validity as a measure of customer loyalty, but some of the objections were saying that it's more of a lagging indicator than a leading indicator. And so it shouldn't be factored into customer health score because it's too far after the fact. So A, I'm curious if you agree with that, but B, I'm curious, you know, from the inception, did you anticipate that this would be used for B2B marketing or do you see it or did you see it as a B2C play? No, it actually started as a B2B idea. It was, it was within Bain and Company and we saw the powerful economic advantage of, of uh, when customers come back for more and refer their mm -hmm. friends, that's the flywheel that drives B2B success and, and referrals in a B2B community are much, they're, they're leveraged because people know each other and your reputation is real. It's not some advertising fiction. So this grew out of business to business. And I, mm -hmm. what I was pleasantly surprised is how relevant it is in a consumer world. Mm -hmm. When customer success leaders are using it, do you think it's possibly sitting in the wrong department? Because if you're talking about it in terms of referrals and growth, um, maybe it's under advocacy or even a sales or revenue organization. 
I, I would think the CFO is the mm -hmm. right place to actually gather data because mm -hmm. CFO departments understand how to do that in an audit worthy, rigorous fashion um, and how to spread information across the organization and, and deal with anonymity when, when necessary and privacy when necessary. But for heaven's sakes, yes, customer success should be using it. Marketing should be using it. Sales and account management should be using it. it the challenge that you gave, it, it's backward looking. I just think that's done. That's dead wrong. It's the only metric I know of that is forward looking. You can criticize it because it asks, how likely would you be to recommend to a friend or colleague? That's a future question. Mm. Maybe it's instantaneous today, but it's forward looking. You know, a lot of companies, especially in B2B, they've chosen a supplier, they've chosen a software, and you know, it's, they're satisfied with it, it works okay, but they're not thrilled with it. They would never recommend it to a friend. Right. But they still come back and are sets, you know, they say they're satisfied and, and they keep buying so they don't defect. That's that's what the recommend cleans out of the shop. Um, right. But this gets at that leading edge looking forward. And I think that's one of its great strengths. Definitely. So is there an area where you see the most opportunity, like if companies should be focusing on turning detractors into promoters and focusing, making that the main thrust of the conversation or capitalizing on the promoters or the passive area? Is there one area of focus or you think it varies widely? Well, the reason I created this the way I did, it's one statistic that summarizes a couple of things underneath it, all of which have to be working well to, uh, to have a high score. You can't have lots of detractors and succeed. You can't fail to create promoters mm -hmm. and succeed. It, it, and so I think working both tails of the distribution is part of the, the brilliance in it. And I think early on companies probably, you know, they, they over-focused on detractors, although you don't have any credibility with your organization or the outside world if you're not consistently finding problems and fixing it. Definitely. The notion that you could get a, a zero from a customer and ignore it, it just boggles my mind. They're telling you, you diminished my life. Yeah. And a good person, a when good you put company, it, like that. Just, it does not let that sit. And yeah. They reach out and at least they apologize. And if they're smart, they'll probe for the root cause and try and fix it. I have a fellow I joined Bain with uh, years and years ago, Scott Cook, left and founded Intuit, the software, financial software firm. Of course. His philosophy, which I quote in the book, he says, we don't deserve a dollar of profit until our customer's happy. And, and that means they're not detractors, right? And, and so mm -hmm. I think a classy organization like Intuit, they're basically saying, we don't want to earn profits from any detractors. Mm -hmm. It would be immoral. Yeah. And yet so many companies today, if I've got them trapped, even if they're detractors, uh, just keep, keep doing it because we're making money, it appears. I, I love that. And so it ties into one of the overarching themes in the book, which is, I mean, the golden rule. You obviously talk about a lot about that being the core purpose of a business like that, that should be at the heart of every organization. Yeah. And I think at the heart of every person who's, who yeah. wants to live a good life and, you know, you don't live a life alone. It's through relationships and loving, caring relationships where your happiness is the result of the success and happiness and well-being of that partner. That's the basis of a good life. And, and what I try to demonstrate in the book, with a lot of evidence and data is that that actually is what makes people rich in business, mm -hmm. especially if you see the underlying flywheel that generates profitable growth for every company I've ever run into. Today's show is brought to you by Catalyst Software, the fastest growing customer success platform on the market. Catalyst gives you unmatched customizability, a seamless bi-directional Salesforce integration that takes less than five minutes to set up, and a world-class customer success team that'll be by your side every step of the way. Let's be honest, whatever you're currently using might be good enough, but is good enough really what you're aiming for? Take your CS team to the next level by switching to Catalyst today. To learn more, visit catalyst.io. And if you aren't looking for a CS platform right now, you should subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn anyways. I make daily memes, we host all sorts of events, and we love to give away our swag, which has been called the comfiest swag in the industry. Again, check out catalyst.io to learn more. I wanted to ask, what's 
one of the best examples, I mean, you shared a ton in the book, but is there a favorite standout for you that is a company truly exemplifying the golden rule? I think almost every one of them, not all, but every one of the companies in the book has that core philosophy. The, the one that I use where I think it's a little bit of an open question would be Amazon, who has historically been customer obsessed and really dedicated to making customers' lives better. And I think they're brilliant at what they've done. But the golden rule and how people are treated throughout the organization, both employees and uh, vendors, that's where the, the improvement is needed, as mm-hmm. good as Amazon is. The other companies, Costco, gosh, they, yeah. they it's a moral philosophy for them, uh, how they treat their people, how they want their people to treat their customers. That was certainly true at, uh, at Schwab and at Vanguard, uh, where you're really relying on people f- to care for you and, and, and make you succeed. Discover is a wonderful example. The uh, credit card organization, just headquartered just north of Chicago, they have so many things. That, well, their, their advertising campaign, they always have two uh, look-alike actors playing a role where you're a customer and the customer service rep talking to each other. Yes, I've seen that. And I always thought it was the same actor or actress, but it's actually, they're doppelgangers. They're just similar looking. And oh. but the whole idea is we treat you like you'd treat you, mm. which is a, a little bit more modern language for this golden rule, love thy neighbor as thyself. And when I asked them for examples, they had like a dozen just right off the top of their head of brilliant examples where they really do the right thing for their customers. They don't do the right thing for their short-term income statement. They make sure that something's affordable over the long haul because you can't go bankrupt. But every investment is prioritized based on how big a customer problem it's solving. And when you call in, instead of getting the most profitable product as your advice, they do what's in the customer's best interest. So you know, gee, I need a $75 loan. And I, I see you've got this, you know, sh- small loan option. The rep will stop you and say, no, wait a minute. I, I see you're available for the cash back at the, at the local grocery store. So if you just go to one of the stores that does cash back, you can get money and there's no interest if you pay it uh, by the end of the month. And, and that's obviously better than this 22% interest rate. Right. And and the reps are so proud that they can tell customers to do what's in the in the customer's best interest. That inspires the reps to want to come to work. And that that's the cycle that the golden rule creates. When you treat people right and when you put your employees in a position to treat customers right, it creates an energy. And so you not only get the economic flywheel of customers coming back for more and bringing their friends, you get the commitment and energy and and trust from your employee base. And given what's going on with the great resignation today, you know, how do you solve this question, this problem of people jumping ship? Well, give them an environment where they can truly live lives of meaning and purpose through, uh, through enriching the, the lives they touch and getting recognized and rewarded for it. Absolutely. I think that's an important lesson for, for everyone to hear. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of, uh, do you know, are you familiar with Lemonade Insurance? I am. I love their, like it's the one insurance, like because obviously there's a lot about insurers and, you know, reps are paid by the amount of claims they reject. So there's a financial incentive to reject as many claims as humanly possible. And with Lemonade, I've never, I've, I, every interaction I've had with them has been either so glad we could cover this for you, like, you know, and they're quick and they're responsive or, you know, unfortunately we can't for these reasons, but we were able to do this and we were able to get you this, you know, as good as it can possibly get within our agreement kind of, kind of arrangement. And it's absolutely like the reason why I think they've grown so quickly and just had so much customer loyalty. And they've built a brand around it. People just love the Lemonade brand, which leads into their marketing and all these other things. But the part of the core part of their brand is just doing the right thing, being good people. Yeah, I think that's an excellent example. I I chatted with the founder of Lemonade and got to really fully appreciate how they've changed the economic model. They don't make more money if they deny a claim. They charge a service fee for finding matching the insurance to the to the 
the insurer and the, and the policyholder, but they're just in the middle earning a, a fair fee. And if they have what they call an underwriting gain on a cluster of customers, it doesn't go to Lemonade's bottom line. It goes to the charity of, your, of the member's choice. Oh, wow. Which is brilliant, right? Because yeah. now you've perfectly aligned the incentives of your workforce with the, what makes the customers happy. And it reminded me of Costco, which also has brilliantly shifted the, uh, the incentive structure. It, it turns out that Costco's membership fee pays 100, that's 100% of their profit requirements. Everything else they do is to make their members get better value and better deals. I love what you share in the book that I think you said the Costco CEO told Jeff Bezos around, you know, there being two types of companies, those that exist to maximize profits and those that exist to minimize cost to their customers. Yeah. I love that because it's something that we all, I think everyone feels through Costco. You included so many great examples in the book. I remember reading a couple of years ago that Costco bought a chicken plant. They'd never gone and done that before, but because the price of producing their rotisserie chickens was going up, instead of raising the price by, I think, $5.99 to $6.99, they instead bought the plant so that they could reduce the cost and keep it where it had always been. And I was just like, who does that? That's such an amazing thing to do. No, they're just, they're deeply committed to this philosophy of customers come first. Every one of the businesses, every one of the companies that I highlight in winning on purpose has that same set of priorities. They would say the primary purpose of our business is to, uh, to make our customers more successful or happier. And we did a survey at Bain to see how much of the business world actually agreed with that core philosophy. And we said, what's, you know, what's the primary purpose of your business? 90% said something other than customer. And it shows you why there's such a disconnect and why so many people don't trust capitalism or business today. It's because I think because we run ourselves on financial metrics, people have gotten very confused in businesses what the primary purpose is. They think it's to maximize shareholder value or you know, to be a great place to work or some balanced duty across all stakeholders equally. And I think that is just baloney. The, the only winning purpose is uh, customers to make their lives better. Because when you do that, all these other stakeholders can be far better off and you can you can do great things with diversity and equity inclusion and cutting pollution. You have the degrees of freedom to actually do those things. But if you don't put customers first, there is no way you get the flywheel going of good customers coming back for more and bringing their friends. Definitely. And you mentioned capitalism in there. So I wanted to bring up one of the topics you speak about in top of the book, which is the idea of customer capitalism being sort of the next economic model. Can you speak a bit about what that what that means? Yeah, I, I mean, when I went to business school, and certainly in my early years at Bain, the, the, we learned a framework that maximizing shareholder value is the right objective for a business. Could, and there's this invisible hand, Adam Smith wrote about it, but the economists would all say, you know, it, resources get allocated correctly in the world. And when by acting in your own self interest, you're actually uh, serving everybody else's interest. I think that's wrong. It's just dead wrong. And the companies who have proven it wrong are the ones that I've highlighted in the book along, I'm sure there are many others, but customer capitalism says, you know, there's plenty of financial cash and capital in the world today. It, that is not the constrained resource. Mm -hmm. What we can't find enough of are qualified employees who will put customers first and the leaders need to inspire their teams to, to put customer interest first, that that's the primary mission of the organization. That idea is what customer capitalism is about. The, the, the capital in a business, and by the way, capitalism comes from uh, Latin where I think capita means head. And, and in the old days, it was how many head of capital cattle you had, or, or, or right. sadly, how many slaves you might have back in the right. ancient, ancient days. But it came to mean some financial thing, when in fact, no, it's today at least, if you don't put customers first and consider them the, the true generators of, of wealth and value, this idea of 
customers, promoters who come back for more and bring their friends. That's the capital in a business, and that's how it should be valued. Absolutely. Um, and that, that's a great segue into I, one of the things I was most excited to read about in the book. People were asking me about when they knew I'd be interviewing you, which is, you know, what's next, right? Like this, the, what, it, what is the next stage of, is it NPS 2.0? Is there something else? And obviously I'm not divulging your secrets until, until the book's out, but I'd love if we could explore a bit about the earned growth rate so, sure. and, and how that came about. The metric that you refer to, I think is a very important advance. We've been struggling with the misuse of net promoter for a long, long time. And, and I preach to people, stop linking it to frontline bonuses, stop getting people in trouble, stop publishing lead tables that humiliate customer service reps who are in the bottom quartile. You can't hold people accountable to a survey-based score when they're the ones talking to the customer. It's just not fair. But people haven't stopped. So I said, you know, you, business leaders do need something to hold people accountable to, but it really needs to be an accounting metric. It's, it's real behaviors that, that can be observed and, and double-checked. And we came up with uh, what I think is a very good solution to, to buttress net promoter, a survey-based score. And it just says uh, earned growth simply takes what Andy Taylor, the f guy that built Enterprise Rent-A-Car into the great business it is today, he said, Fred, there's only one way to build a business, profitably, sustainably. You treat customers so they come back for more and bring their friends. And it's finally struck me that, yeah, you know, actually we could measure that. What percentage of your revenues is coming from customers coming back again, who, who were with you previously, and their referrals? And, and earned growth measures that. And I think, I think it has the potential to, uh, to revolutionize the business world the, the way that Net Promoter has over the last couple decades. I, I agree. And I think it, it plays in, I think it ties in beautifully with, you know, I can't go to any conference or talk virtual or in person without hearing about net dollar retention, net revenue retention, um, which is obviously, you know, the amount of, of revenue you're increasing from your existing customers. I mean, earned growth rate is a similar concept, but it, it takes on a different segment. It's not from your existing customers that you're earning more revenue from the same people. It's uh, what, where's the increased revenue coming from new customers that are coming from your existing customers like that's well it adds that component it, it earned growth takes the first component which you net revenue retention or net mm -hmm. dollar retention which i think is a vital chunk but that's not all you also have to measure how much are your existing customers generating for you in new business through referrals and that's one where people just haven't bothered really getting serious about measuring it but in today's uh world of big data and digital tools, it is nuts not to carefully monitor the referral flow. Now you think about how expensive is it to buy growth with high paid salespeople, advertising, marketing, gimmicks, you know, all this st mm -hmm. stuff. It's a huge tax. Definitely. Um, yeah. Referral. I mean, it's no secret that those customers that come in through referrals and, and warm introductions are, you know, cheaper to acquire, faster to close, you know, a much higher percent chance of long-term success and, and retention over time. Um, and that they're likely to refer other people as well. It's that sort of But, thing but show me how many CFOs could actually tell you exactly, uh, precisely what those numbers are that you just described. Very few. Very and therefore few. they get discounted and, uh, and it doesn't drive people's uh, priorities or their investments. And I'd say if your real objective is to love customers and enrich their lives, the referral is that clear signal that you've you've done that. Whereas repeat business is a lower standard. You weren't so bad enough to create a defection. Whereas the very high the high bar that recommendation creates is this was so special. I want this for a loved one or a friend or a colleague, someone I care about. It's an act of love to refer. Not so much love for your business as love for that person who they're referring to, yeah. to, to, to get this wonderful experience that they've discovered. I agree. And I, I think it's something where we need to explore more because we do see, you know, we have a lot of practices we implement um, to to love our customers. And like, for example, one of the key ones is that we uh, we don't do Based 
pricing. We don't limit the number of seats, unlike you know most tech companies right now, because that disincentivizes bringing people onto the platform and it you know silos the data and all that. So we say you know uniform, like everyone can get access. It's completely democratized, um, which is a great change for a lot of our customers. And so because of those things, we do see spontaneous referrals born out of love, like pop up on forums and things, but it's in no reliable way, like systematized or tracked. And we're not digging in to see if we sort of look backwards, what was it that led, what was this person's journey that led them here? How can we recreate more of this? And let's invest in making, taking these from happening, you know, once a month to happening once a day um, and making that the golden star. And to, to, to turn it into a science where you really can sort of dig for the root causes and run experiments, you have to have a reliable measurement process. And that's where we've been just so sloppy on, uh, on referral flows and 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 as as you see in the book it's time to stop and we have some pretty good beta tests and, and starting points for for measuring it correctly although there we we certainly have learning in front of us the same way we did 20 years ago with that promoter definitely it'll be something that that evolves and grows but that is something i wanted to dig into a little more because i think again getting into the b2c b2b side of things for uber eats uh, for example, you know, I can share my code and then I get $20, my friend gets $20. I'm actually curious on, on a separate note to talk about this with you because uh, of what we see a lot of companies doing is trying to buy referrals. Yeah, I think once it's bri once the bribes get over a, a nominal amount, it's, it's no longer a referral, it's a bribe. And part of the answer may be like Lemonade does it. It's, it's a charity contribution where it's, it's not such a big number or, and it's not selfish, you know, and I'm, I don't get rich, but I, I'll put $20, $100, $1,000, what, what's appropriate given the ticket size you're dealing with and, and have, uh, have it benefit a charity in that person's name or mm. you're, you're getting to a very key point. We've got to experiment with what's the right way because it's probably not going to be frictionless except in that B2C example you just described you know it's the it's so easy when somebody sends you a yeah somebody sends you a an email with a tracker code on it you can track yeah. who referred and and when and, and have all the data but in a organizational setting we have to i think experiment with ways to make it worth people's time to mm -hmm. tell the truth and give us the data i mean where it's even after the fact i mean that's one of the things we we love to do is if if we ask someone you know would you be comfortable being a reference for us and we can introduce them on a call and they're honest and then and then afterwards we send them a thank you gift but there's no uh, nothing ahead of time there's no promise of you know a thousand dollar you know bonus for for taking the call or anything like that so we try to do it in a way that's organic and honest but where we can still say thank you and show our appreciation yep that i think that's the right approach I mean, we talked about NDR um, or NRR, um, NPS, EGR now, earned growth rate. <laughs> Do you see all of these three metrics coexisting? Are they complementary? Do you think any of them are going to sort of go out of the spotlight and, and be overshadowed? Oh, I think, uh, I think Net Promoter will continue to be vital, especially if we can get people to stop doing the dumb things that some are doing it with it, including reporting unaudited numbers to the investors. I know the subtleties of measuring NPS correctly, and there are a lot of them. You can change your score by 10 points just by flipping the uh, the scoring scale from zero to 10 to 10 through zero. And people don't know that. And now they're reporting these scores, but they don't say, you know, which customers did we ask? And mm -hmm. what was the response rate? And was it right after some happy transaction, like a rebate or, was it randomly across and was it done by a third party who uses double blind rigor? You really have to know what those numbers are and the details behind them before you know how to interpret them. So we need to get this undisciplined reporting of whatever I feel like my net promoter score is at the moment. But if we can fix that, yes, net promoter is going to be a really vital number for, for as long as I can imagine. I think earned growth will supplement it, not replace it. Because you're always going to want to ask people, you know, why and what you need to do differently. There's always going to be an outreach to a promoter and a detractor that is a good use of time. 
On the other hand, earned growth is what's appropriate for uh, reporting to investors. It's what's uh, what will be appropriate for linking to uh, to compensation when that's appropriate. So I see them having their both having very important roles. Interesting. I'm excited to see where that goes. And I mean, I think there's always going to be companies where well, and, and sort of this ties into a larger conversation. You mentioned the Great Resignation before, and there will always be ways to fudge the data or to you know to mess with sample sizes or things like that to to get the result that you want. Just as there is with profits, right? I, exactly. I, I can I can fudge it and cheat it, and maybe I'll go to jail if I do a <laughs> a gross job. But you know, I can fill up the pipeline and oversell so that there's a bunch of stuff in the pipe. It, it, there's there I mean, is no we, metric. We work just announced their second IPO today, so I've got we work on the the brain going from forty seven <laughs> billion down to now nine billion. Well, there's there. there's a good one. So even accounting has trouble getting truth on the table. Definitely. But hopefully we do, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of companies that lean into it and love it and, and truly benefit from what it has to offer. The question I, I wanted to ask you, because of, and tying it into the Great Resignation, is because I think while we can we agree we can always fudge the data, the larger problem that I think that's indicative of is just people don't have the safety at these organizations to report negative numbers. Like they don't feel that they can fail or get a six on their you know NPS score and still keep their job or, or not be looked down on or, or anything like that. And I think it ties into this larger cultural issue of making it okay to be a work in progress, both personally and as a company. And I think until companies sort of figure that piece out, how to create that psychological safety and make it okay to not be great yet, you know, it's, we're going to keep seeing those sorts of, of misuses. Yeah. The, 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 the approach that GE made famous about, you know, rank ordering everybody and fire the bottom 10%. <laughs> that's just a horrible, uh, that's a, that's a culture that who only applied a, there after that. I don't understand who would want to work there. It has to be a loving culture that helps people succeed, but it also has to be a realistic one that if you can't find a valuable role to help a team win, you won't be appreciated. And this is not the place for you. So mm -hmm. there also, there has to be that reality built in. I think one place that's made amazing progress on that is Bain & Company. In the early years, we were a classic up or out shop and, and that stack ranking and everything just added to the stress and it led to bad things. And the company today is a different world. The vast, vast, vast majority of people there feel like, you know, even if I can't be a long-term success here, these people, this group is going to help me uh, succeed in my life. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty wonderful situation to, to, to have, but I don't see why that can't be true in most businesses. Have you seen any businesses do a 180 in terms of, you know, going from shareholder value above all and the sort of stat? Well, I mean, you were just speaking about Bain. So maybe we continue with that. What was the catalyst that changed Bain from a you know, from, from that sort of organization to the one that it is now. Yeah, I think Bain's a great example. We were all about the numbers and uh, the founders put a lot of debt on the firm to pay themselves out and get rich. As one does, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but they were still in charge of the place and, and it wasn't transparent. So none of us who were the worker bees at the time really understood what risk they were putting us in. As that started to become clear, good people started leaving and uh, the energy dropped and we had a layoff and the place we came within hours of bankruptcy in the early nineties. And I tell this story in the book. It's, you know, it's, I think it's the first time anyone has really told the story at Bain, how something that was on such a success path then almost crashed and burned and then came out of that back to the very top of its industry. That's an amazing story. I, I don't know of many that have made that kind of 180 shift and what we did was based on living values and uh, this notion of we exist as an organization to make our clients more successful but we as leaders of that organization our primary responsibility is to our teams our people not only to inspire them to embrace that mission but to help them succeed on it and that alignment is um, it changed everything were you always like, have you always 
had this this sort of view and and outlook and and been focused on providing value to others and that sort of thing uh, or or was there something in your own life that that sort of was somewhat of an epiphany and sort of changed your your approach and your outlook no i always felt like this golden rule was at the core of all good relationships and all good businesses i started out thinking well it's only a niche of companies that really mm. can rely on this but over the years i've come to see it's it's 98% there's an occasional monopoly that gets developed and the network effect is really working to to full impact i have a feeling that facebook might be one of those but for the 99% of businesses this really is the only way to sustain successful uh, profitable growth and so have i changed no i haven't changed my point of view I, I what i've changed is how broadly i think that truth has worked out mm. and and the evidence with these millions of net promoter feedback signals is is has clarified this underlying truth it's been hidden before and you just read the business press you never hear people talk about apple and its great prosperity because they love their customers but that's yeah. that's what they're doing they're not perfect but at the core they want to make their customers lives better that's also amazon so it it works and in the digital world it probably works faster and and gets a little bit more transparent definitely i mean we can see that the, those changes i think much much quicker than than some other companies but the uh something i wanted to touch on that that you mentioned at the top of the we talked about at the top of the the show was your your personal stock index that you created that outperformed the was the S&P 500 for how many how many years? Yeah, I mean, it, it, one of the things that Bain has always had is you know put your money where your mouth is, and you so literally we, did that. We take uh, you know we have more success fees in our consulting than I think anybody in the industry because we don't want to succeed unless our client succeeds. It's the Scott Cook mentality, mm-hmm. and for me, I had this deep belief that the world and the market were undervaluing the importance of loving customers. This this flywheel of customers coming back for more and bringing their friends. And now that we had net promoter x-raying of industries, so we knew who was best in each industry, I invested in those leaders personally. I mean, occasionally I couldn't because it was a Bain client. We have very tight rules about not right. investing in, in places where you could ever be possibly imagine that you have insider data. So we have outside of those few situations, I just invested every time I found an MPS leader. That essentially tripled the stock market over the last decade. Wow. It made me, you know, quite wealthy. And the total return, the average was 26% a year. It was better than wow. most private equity companies. Most certainly it was it better than hundred percent of the mutual funds and EFTs out there in the Morningstar index. So it 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 was just a crushing success. And I continue to invest every time I find a net promoter leader, especially when the leadership team says things that make me think, ah, I found another one of these that I just, I invest in their stock. First Republic Bank is a great example. I didn't know them uh, until I gave a keynote speech for them. One of their directors invited me and and, uh, it's actually a business school professor, Boris Groisberg. And he said, you know, your philosophy is so similar to First Republic. And and it was actually, they measured Net Promoter. It's, it's very hard in their business, but they're the ones that actually were the first company that had measured earned growth rate. And it was stunningly high. And so I put money in them and it's, you know, it's been very good to me. Tesla, I didn't know Tesla was at a flash in the pan and way overvalued like the world, most of the world was saying, because the stock has just exploded. Mm-hmm. Well, NPS Prism, the Bain data business, did an x-ray of the auto business. And sure enough, Tesla is 10 points higher than the number two player in the US auto business, which is Subaru. And I said, hmm, Uh, so I invested in Tesla and I I will continue that this whole thing I call the Fredzy, it's foster recommendation, eliminate detraction, that's an acronym. (laughs) It's also my name, Love it. but the stock index, SI stock index. So the Fredzy is just this uh, amalgam, a portfolio of companies who love their customers better than their competitors. And NPS is the metric carefully, rigorously gathered through with Bain rigor. And and I think, you know, eventually the world's gonna get it. But it's astonishing how hard 
it is to convince people who have a financial mindset to see the light. But again, you, you've got the data. And what I love about that is, I mean, I'm definitely going to be stealing that approach. And I hope that I'm sure you hope that as many people as possible. Hey, I hope everyone invests because... in all those stocks because it can't hurt the price. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Won't hurt you personally, but also it, it, by doing that, if, if we have a shift in terms of the, the investment philosophies that we all have that eventually drift, you know, that these both big mutual funds as well as individual investors adopt, then eventually it drives more business into customer focused companies, which leads to better services and products for all of us and a better culture shaped around helping other people. And it sort of all comes back around to the golden rule, which which I love. Our world is far better if more and more resources go to these companies who love their customers. And and that's what happens. I think as people start to see that investors only win when they're when the company loves its customers and those customers feel the love, that's gonna strengthen the apples of the world and it's gonna weaken the uh, financial mindset players. And yeah, I think mm -hmm. that makes for a better world. Same way that you don't wanna invest in companies that pollute the environment. So stop investing in those those people belching black smoke. Similarly, stop investing in companies that are belching black smoke in the in the form of unhappy customers who feel like capitalism is a horrible thing and yeah. business is greed and self-interest. It it's it's pollution in a in a different form, but it's it's just as unhealthy. Absolutely. I mean, I I know we're we're getting towards the end. I have a couple more questions I was I wanted to ask you about the just because you've you've led such an incredible life in terms of your impact on the world and shaping the culture of of the business world but you've also you know faced challenges like you talk about in the book your your you know terminal illness and and that you know thankfully very healthy and and doing well um uh, but in, in even in the light of that you've taken on new and exciting challenges like this book and when you reflect you know are there one or two pieces of advice that you'd give for people who are to people who are earlier on in their careers and hope to have a similar impact or, or reach some of the successes that you have had? Yeah, I mean, if you read the dedication of the book, it's to my two granddaughters. So I really am just trying to write a life philosophy. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you build, how do you live a life of purpose? As a customer, it has implications for who you want to buy from. And as an employee, who do you want to work for? And as an investor, where do you want to put your savings and invest? You know, we have finite minutes of earth, of time on earth. Which people, which teams, which organizations do we want to spend that time with and invest in relationships? I mean, that's the true investment in life. It's our time and our energy. Mm -hmm. Dollars are an interesting extra layer that I think are second and third order outcomes of, of wise choices and who you spend your life with. And I hope that the world has a better sense of recognizing that. I hope my kids do. Think of this as a it's a it's a moral philosophy book masquerading as a business book. <laughs> but yes, I can it, see that. It is very practical in terms of how you can have a successful career, how you can buy from the right people more intelligently, and how you can invest and crush the market in a way that should make you proud and the world better. Phenomenal. Um, last and probably one of the most important questions, um, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to recommend this podcast to other authors and, and consult? Oh, you gotta, you gotta do it right. It's from zero <laughs> to 10. It's oh, from sorry, zero to 10. Did I say 10. one? Oh, that was the wrong person to ask the, <laughs> misphrase the question yeah. to. <laughs> but I am not as familiar with your podcast as I'm going to be, but I think your line of questioning was very insightful. So I hope you get lots of people listening to it and and that they think about this the power of this book and these ideas in this context excellent i do as well i think there's a lot that so much that people can take away from it both you know as you outlined for for business for life financially focusing on who you spend your time with what's what's next for you i mean you you've this is obviously very exciting with the release of the book are you going to be going speaking are you already thinking about the next book and the next equation yeah, I don't I, I don't know if there is going to be any keynote speaking. That was that was my life in the old mm -hmm. days and now we'll see. I'll certainly be doing a lot of Zooms and Definitely. and uh and digital communication. I don't know if I'll have another book in me. It it's not obvious that I need one at this point. 
my fifth cancer scan is coming up this month. And if that one's clean, then my odds go way up of having a reasonably healthy next decade. So it's all contingent on, on health and energy, but, but I feel like I still have, I want to impact the world in a positive way. And I probably will pick one or two verticals to have the greatest impact. And one of them I talk about in the book, it's, I think in digital, I, I'm on the board of a company called Built, B-I-L-T, mm-hmm. and it's going to make people's lives better. It already is. So I, I hope I can continue to influence the digital space, and I I hope I can influence healthcare, which is the maybe the most yeah. broken part of our society right now. So much. Uh, I mean, good people trying their best, but just a fractured, screwed up system, and I'm hoping maybe to make a little contribution there, but, uh, it's we'll great see. people I'm, in I'm... a broken system. I just moved from Canada to the U S four months ago and I got my first $30,000 bill last <sighs> week and thank God I have insurance, but I was like, is this real? I, t- I had to take a photo of it cause I, I you hear about it, but that was, uh, that was definitely a wake up for me. No. And all the senior citizens are just barraged with these crazy bills from all different places. They don't know which ones to pay. And, it's a horrible nightmare. And yet with a bunch of well-intentioned people working in it. So we have a long way to go. We do, but I, I love the energy that you bring to everything you do. And it's just this constant stream of positivity and energy. It's like you're the Dolly Parton of business, of the business world. <laughs> That's never been called that, but there are, there are worse things. I'm a, I'm a fan. But hey, that's, that's one of the biggest compliments I could pay anyone is comparing them to Dolly Parton. So, Thank um, you. no, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. I loved reading your book and I'm excited to share it with everybody. So wishing you all the best and sending all the positive thoughts for your, for your upcoming, uh, upcoming screening. Thank you, Ben. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Make sure to subscribe. And if you want to reach out to us, our email is community at getcatalyst.io.